Okay, welcome to the second part of lecture one. And we are going to start in chapter four of the public law book on the question of sources of Canadian law. And the first concept that we are going to review is the idea of the reception of European law. And of course, the fact that European law applies within Canada and that European legal systems have such an influence on the Canadian legal system has to do with Canada's colonial history, which I briefly touched on in the first part of today's lecture. The specifics of how the courts have conceptualized the reception of British law is undoubtedly based on a racist belief about the Aboriginal populations of Canada. And this is because the British common law drew a distinction between regions that were considered conquered and regions that were considered settled. And this distinction is addressed in the case of Cooper and Stewart, which is at page 82 of your casebook. And this is a decision of the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which is the law lords in England, and they were the final court of appeal for Canada, as I mentioned in the previous portion of the lecture. And they also were the final court of appeal for Australia. And this is a case about Australia and in this case, Lord Watson explains how there are some of the colonies that are considered conquered or ceded and those which are considered settled. And a colony is conquered or ceded when the British government encounter an established system of law, in the words of Lord Watson. The other option is that a colony can be settled, and that is when, in the words of Lord Watson, there is a tract of territory practically unoccupied without settled inhabitants or settled law at the time it was annexed into the British dominions. And those are Lord Watson's words. So there is a judgment as to whether or not the new territory, which is to be brought under the British flag, has an existing legal system and it within quotes settled inhabitants uh, unsurprisingly this effectively turns on racist prejudgment of societies based on how similar or familiar they are to british conceptualizations so in canada Central Canada, which had an existing system of French civil law, was considered conquered. The balance of Canada was considered settled. The fact that there were First Nations with different societies, different sets of law, different rules, all throughout Canada was dealt with as unimportant for this question. The land was considered what's been called terra nullis. This doctrine, the idea that Canada is a, by and large, settled rather than conquered land, has 
profound implications for when we talk about Aboriginal rights and title towards the end of the course. And so we will pick up this question later and grapple with the degree to which the erasure of the historical fact of existing Aboriginal societies with laws, with governance, with custom, continues to permeate thinking in Canadian public law. But for now, what's important to bear in mind is that there is a common law doctrine through which British statutory law began to apply in the colonies in Canada. And furthermore, this law has been codified in various jurisdictions throughout Canada, including British Columbia, which in its Law and Equity Act states that the civil and criminal laws of England as they exist on November 19th, 1858, so far as they are not from local circumstances inapplicable, are in force in British Columbia. So it is possible to still look back at British statutory law that predates the establishment of a legislature in British Columbia, the establishment of Canada even, and say that that statutory law continues to apply in British Columbia. This doesn't come up very often. Canada and BC have an extensive set of laws which cover most situations and certainly if a local law applies in a situation a law of the Canadian or federal the Canadian federal or the British Columbia legislatures then that is the law that will govern however where there is a hole in the law it is possible to try to dust off an old British statute book and see if you can't find an answer this actually came up in a case, Conseil Scolaire Francophone. This is an, an ongoing piece of litigation, and I believe the final decision in this case from the Supreme Court of Canada on the substance of the dispute is coming out on Friday. And it's not in your book, but just an interesting case, Conseil, I'm not excellent at saying French names, Conseil Scolaire Francophone de la Colombie-Britannique in British Columbia in 2013 went up to the Supreme Court of Canada on an interim interlocutory decision on the question of whether the um, French school group that was bringing the litigation could file affidavits in French without having to pay for the very expensive service of having a certified translator translate those into English. And the need to put the affidavits into English was based on a 1731 act of the Imperial British Parliament that was relied upon as the basis to say that you have to file material in British Columbia court today in English. The school group challenged the application of that law and it went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada but they were unsuccessful so the court upheld the principle that the 1858 reception of British statutory law still governs in British Columbia and set out a test as to when 
this exception, which is in the Law and Equity Act about um, whether or not the statue is from local circumstances inapplicable, will be triggered. Now, I don't want you to worry about that case. I just mention it because it's an interesting example of how the English statutory law continues to have relevancy, albeit at the margins, within Canadian public law. This is a relatively obscure part of Canadian public law, but it does get at and tie the colonial history to the law which continues to apply within Canada. The much more relevant gift, as it were, that the British legal system gave to the Canadian legal system is the common law. Now, the common law, which I suspect students have already studied elsewhere, is the law as made or discovered by judges. It's heavily based on precedent and the principle of stare decisis. So the way it works is relevant past judicial decisions are considered as evidence of the law. And the common law is then constructed out of a series of cases. It's a set of fixed rules that are unearthed by judges. And it's in the case law that is set out in the volumes, which in theory contain all of the law up to that date. The notion of the common law being in dusty volumes of law reports in the chambers of the judges and available in the law libraries is supplanted in modern times by the law being massive with decisions of every court being released every day there being thousands of decisions from the British Columbia Supreme Court, for example, that are issued each year, it would be practically impossible for anybody to keep up on all the new decisions that are released. Um, but still, the process continues whereby a common law rule laid out by a judge in one case can be taken from that case and applied in a similar case and it does not depend on there being any codification any statute which explains the common law rule if a judge said it subject to the rules of when a judicial decision will be binding which i'll touch on briefly then that decision is generally expected to govern in subsequent decisions the other form of law is civil law and this is the idea where instead of having judicially pronounced common law, there is a codification, a writing down of the law. We are not going to spend time on civil law, uh, for one that's generally private law, but it's important to know for public law purposes at a high level that the Canadian system implicates and integrates both civil law and common law. And that is why Canada has often been called a bijural country. Bijuralism remains the, I would say, dominant theory as to a description of the Canadian legal system, although I think that it's inaccurate because of Indigenous law, which we will talk about later to consider Canada bijural.
To a large extent, however, Quebec civil law has been anglicized and its legislative and judicial traditions come from the English stream as opposed to the French stream. There's adversarial court processes in Quebec. It is not an inquisitive model for judging. There's not a, a school. Judges don't go to school to be judges as they do in many civil law jurisdictions. They're appointed from senior members of the bar. Dissenting judgments are permitted even on civil law matters, which may be a surprise to students who have studied civil law systems elsewhere. So the fine points of the distinctions between Canadian civil law and other civil law systems, the Canadian civil law that is in Quebec, uh, is, a, is a fascinating topic for study, which could found a course in and of itself. But for our present purposes, all we need to really take away from this is that there are both common law and civil law systems that up, up continue to apply within Canada. Moving back to the way the common law system works, and again, this probably will be a refresher for most of the students, but it's governed by the principle of stare decisis, which means strictly let the matter stand. Uh, we'll be looking at this in some depth later in the course. And within a stare decisis systems, rulings are considered either persuasive or authoritative, unless they've been overturned on appeal. How that works is there's a hierarchy of courts. So judges, unless the case, unless the point has been overturned by a higher court, must follow decisions from the higher courts within their jurisdiction. In British Columbia, the trial level court, the general superior trial level court, is called the British Columbia Supreme Court. It's not to be confused with the Supreme Court of Canada, which is the highest appellate court, the United States Supreme Court. The British Columbia Supreme Court is the trial court, not an appeal court. Limited exceptions. Appeals from the British Columbia Supreme Court go to the British Columbia Court of Appeal. Decisions of the British Columbia Court of Appeal are binding because of the doctrine of stare decisis on the British Columbia Supreme Court. Appeals from the British Columbia Court of Appeal, in turn, can go to the Supreme Court of Canada. Decisions of the Supreme Court of Canada are binding on the British Columbia Court of Appeal and binding on the British Columbia Supreme Court. And indeed, they're binding on all courts throughout Canada. And that's another interesting wrinkle. If anyone has studied United States law, you'll know that the United States Supreme Court has its jurisdiction um, within federal law, the law of the United States as a whole, whereas there are state Supreme Courts that have the final say on state law. That's not the case in Canada. The Canadian Supreme Court is the court of final record, the court of final opinion on all matters from all courts. So that's stare decisis in what's called the, the vertical sense. Higher courts setting out pronouncements which are to be followed by the lower courts. And this is what I talked of when I talked of rulings being authoritative. There's also rulings which are persuasive. And that's when you go 
outside of a jurisdiction and rely on a decision from another court. So if I have a case and I look and there's a great case from the Ontario Court of Appeal that explains exactly the same point and its result is something that will be very helpful to my client, happily bring that, I will happily bring that to the attention of the British Columbia Supreme Court. However, I can't say that they must follow that decision in the way that they must follow a decision of the British Columbia Court of Appeal. Rather, that decision being from another jurisdiction, even though it's technically a higher court, it's a court of appeal, it's not a, uh, it's not a provincial, uh, it's not a trial level court, even so it is only persuasive. So when making an argument, you want to consider first, are there binding authorities from the, from the Supreme Court of Canada or from the British Columbia Court of Appeal? Then you can look also for persuasive authorities from other courts and other jurisdictions. And generally speaking, the higher level appellate courts will be found more persuasive than trial level decisions. Finally, you can consider other decisions of the British Columbia Supreme Court. The common law says that, generally speaking, judges should follow decisions from the same court unless there is a good reason to depart from that decision. So they're not strictly bound by other decisions of the same court, but judges will very rarely be willing to depart from a decision of one of their brother or sister judges. So what to take away from that? Just remember there's a hierarchy of courts and decisions will be binding on lower courts. Decisions that come from courts outside of the jurisdiction may be persuasive but not authoritative. And judgments from the same court will generally be followed unless there's a good reason not to. Another important feature of the common law to bear in mind as we move through this course is the notion of ratio descendi or the rule decided versus obiter dicta or stray words. Ratio descendi on the one hand, obiter dicta on the other hand. What I'm getting at here is that in decisions there are going to be components of the analysis that were key to the decision that was ultimately made. There are going to be other parts of the reasoning that are going to not have factored into the ultimate decision that was made. Judges often will comment upon things that are related to the decision that they are making, but which are not directly relevant, directly instrumental to the decision that was made. When they do that, those words are what's called obiter dicta. They are uh, not binding on other judges in the way that the ratio is. But there's an excerpt in your book, which is quite helpful, from Stephen Wadhams, who describes the difficulty in determining what is the ratio and what is the obiter in a case. He writes... Not everything a judge says in the course of deciding a case can be binding on her successors, or the common law would have perished long before now 
from a surfeit of precedence. What is said to be binding is the decision, but this is an ambiguous concept. The actual facts of the case never arise again in identical form. A general rule is given that explains the result in the instant case will apply to at least some other cases. It is this rule called the ratio descendi, reason of deciding, that is said to constitute the binding rule for purposes of precedent. Everything else that is said by the judge is called obiter dicta, things said by the way. In theory, the ratio descenda is binding on lower courts, but the obiter dicta is not. And I like this passage from Wadhams because it gets at the difficulty in determining what is and is not ratio and what is obiter. And when you litigate, this is something that you will argue about for sure. You will say, ah, my friend simply relies on the obiter of this judge. This is not the ratio of the case. And their side will say that's the ratio that's the most important part so it's it's a it's a gray area that's brought into the common law to determine exactly what part of a decision is binding and what part is extra wadhams goes on to say there is no true ratio descendi of a decision the ratio descendi of a case is only as wide as a subsequent court will concede it to be that is not to say the doctrine of stare decisis is meaningless. Sometimes the judge will find herself unable to distinguish a former case on any rationally acceptable ground, but the doctrine is a good deal less rigid than it might at first appear. And I, I very much concur with that articulation of the gray fuzziness of exactly what is the ratio in any particular case. We will spend a good part of this course trying to distill ratios from cases, but that doesn't mean that the task has one correct answer. And the how far a subsequent court is willing to extend the ratio of a previous case is a matter that's almost inevitably open for debate. So generally, just to recap, that is the broad idea of the common law that we are going to be concerned with in this case. The idea that the reasons from judges deciding cases will be binding in subsequent decisions. They will be binding on lower courts. They will be binding on other judges of the same court unless there's a good reason to depart from them. They will be persuasive when applied to courts in other jurisdictions, they may be persuasive. And the common law is this constantly evolving thing, the idea being that judges are discovering the law. And the final point on the common law that I'd like to underscore before moving on to talk a bit about statutory law is that the way the common law operates in practice can seem to be retrospective. You can do something and you could look in every single casebook that has ever been published and not find anything saying that what you are doing is unlawful. You may in fact find numerous cases that say what you are doing is okay. And yet, if your matter comes to court and the judge decides that the common law needs to evolve on a point, 
they will declare that your conduct was unlawful, is unlawful, and will order a remedy. So despite the fact that at the time you did it, there was no way that you could know that what you were doing was unlawful because there was no judicial decision that said so, you will still be treated as if you have violated the law and subject and liable to the penalties. So I'm going to speak next about statutory law, the laws that are passed by the legislatures, the parliament and the provincial legislatures and which fill the statute books. And these statutes are higher in the hierarchy of laws applicable in Canada than is the common law. If there's an inconsistency between a statutory law and the common law, it is the statutory law that will govern. And this relationship has, I would suggest, the effect of freeing judges to be more bold in their development of the common law. Because if they develop the common law in a way that is broadly unpopular or unaccepted, uh, there could be an appeal. But furthermore, there could be a statute passed which would overrule that common law decision. So in theory, parliament is supreme, this idea of parliamentary supremacy. We're going to talk about a bunch in this course. And the parliament is supreme they can overrule these judicially made common law rules by passing a specific statute and the judges in subsequent cases will be bound to follow the statute not the common law rule now this is the theory however in practice the common law can be fairly resilient and the way the common law fights back as it were is to interpret the judges may interpret this statute very narrowly so as to preserve much of the common law rule. That's descriptive of what often happens in practice. However, what you need to think about for this course is the theoretical relationship being you have the judicially created common law which can be displaced by statutes which are higher in the hierarchy of the Canadian legal system. Very briefly, I'm going to touch on the effect of international law in Canadian public law. And international law generally takes two forms. There are treaties, which are sort of akin to the statutory law of the international community. And then there is customary international law, which is the sort of analog of the common law of international relationships and statutory law has this dualist effect in Canada where the dualist in that there's two different questions that need to be addressed when thinking about the effect of a treaty in Canadian law the first is what is the effect of signing a treaty on the Canadian government itself and the answer is when the Canadian government signs a treaty, it is bound by that treaty on the international stage. However, simply by signing a treaty, which is done by the executive of the Canadian government, it's not parliament that's going to sign treaties, it's the, the executive. When the executive signs a treaty, this doesn't make the treaty law throughout Canada. 
And you can imagine that it would do great violence to a federalist system where there is distinct spheres of influence for the provinces and the federal government if the federal executive could go sign a treaty and then make a law binding throughout all of Canada, even on matters that were within the jurisdiction of the provincial legislatures. So instead, under this dualist framework, the Canadian government itself gets bound by signing a treaty. But then it is up to the Canadian government to implement the treaty in the country by passing legislation which implements that agreement. And if it's a matter that's already within federal jurisdiction, well then Parliament simply needs to pass a statute implementing the treaty, which usually won't be that hard because the head of the executive who enters into the treaties is the Prime Minister who should be able to pass legislation through Parliament. We'll get to the workings of Parliament shortly. However, if the Prime Minister needs to get all of the provinces on board to sign, sign into law legislation that implements a treaty, this can be a much heavier lift. So the big picture takeaway to remember is with treaties, they get signed, that binds the government on the international stage, but it doesn't make the treaty part of Canadian domestic law. Rather, it has to go through, has to go through either federal parliament or the provincial legislatures to become part of Canadian law. Customary international law, as I said, is the analogous of the common law of international relations. So customary international law has been criticized as amorphous and this is not an international law course, and the nuances of customary international law are very delicate and have been um, some of the issues around customary international law have recently been uh, raised and changed and challenged by the Supreme Court of Canada in a recent case called Nevson. And we're not going to get into that in this course, but just Generally, the idea of customary international law is there are some practices that are universal, that reach such a level of acceptance that they become part of the common law that governs nations. These were initially thought to be really aspirational ideas, but they have now taken on the force of common law within Canada in some circumstances. So just as the legislatures can implement treaties by passing legislation, the judges can recognize customary international norms by integrating them into the common law. And a classic example is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was issued by the UN General Assembly in 1948. And as it notes in your book, in 95, a Canadian minister reported that Canada regards the principles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as entrenched in customary international law binding on all governments. So these principles went from being aspirationally set out in a declaration to being regarded as a part of customary international law, which can then be applied by the judges 
by integrating the ideas of customary international law into Canadian common law. So then to recap the ideas that we looked at through chapter four, we looked at the common law and civil law traditions, which both exist in Canada. We talked about the idea of the reception of European law, which under British common law depended on the frankly racist proposition that the applicability of English law would depend on judging, in effect, how European the society that was already in existence in that place was. That common law has been supplanted by statute in jurisdictions including British Columbia, which still allow for British statutory law to apply within Canada, although practically speaking, this comes up very rarely. We talked about the nature of common and civil law. We talked about the operation of stare decisis, and we talked about the difference between the ratio descendi and the obiter dicta of a case. We touched briefly on statutory law and where it falls within the hierarchy of the Canadian legal order. And finally, we talked about international law, treaties, and customary law. So we're going to move on now to chapter five and introduce the constitution and recurring constitutional problems in Canadian law in the last portion of day one's lectures.